First off, to all of our regular listeners, apologies for the delay in getting this episode published. We really wanted to get it out sooner. But without further ado, in this week's episode, we interview Luis Rodriguez from Risa Energy. Luis and his team are focused on acquiring non-op interests for private equity investors. His team is very sleek, very sophisticated, utilizing cutting edge technologies to make strategic acquisitions. In this podcast, we get to dig into Luis's story and learn about how he went from working on an international team at Schlumberger into Brigham Resources and eventually finding his way as founder and CEO of Risa Energy. We are also joined by our guest host, Mr. Evan Anderson from Osberg, who as always brings a lot of flavor and interesting insights into the conversation. Thanks for listening to Oil Intel, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Luis, thanks for coming on the show here today. Evan, this is our second show here together uh, with you as co-host. And with that, do you mind kicking us off here and getting us started? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you, Luis. I've, I've talked to some of your team members uh, up there in Denver before and really intrigued, um, you know, first first learned about Reza through um, Alex Cranberg, actually, um, and, and some of his uh, contacts and then through, uh, through NCAP. And uh, I'm curious, you know, I was kind of reading a little bit about your background. You started out in in well services, I thought maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about, you know, how you, you know, what your journey looked like from well services to a, a PE bag non-op minerals fund, and um, you know what role, if any, Alex played in that. And uh, I, you know, I've read a little bit about how he's played a mentor to you, and I'm curious as to uh, how he kind of shaped, you know, your professional development. Sure, uh, appreciate. Uh, being able to to share a little bit of this um well i guess well services uh i have to say is is um both a, an interesting place to start and a tough place to pivot from um i i couldn't be more grateful for the opportunity that schlumberger gave me to be able to um come abroad from the hardships that were being endured in Venezuela at the time. Um, and the fact that, you know, they have a, a very unique system of, of really creating opportunities and a passport with which to enable a person to uh, enjoy success uh, in any part of the world. Uh, at the same time, I think as you look to transition from services to you know the ENP side. It wasn't it wasn't an easy an easy transition because it's really seen as two almost completely different businesses. One invests heavily in R and D and uh, is is really tied to uh, execution of services. The other one is more of an understanding of of, of risk um, uh, and underground risk and uh, asset management. And so. You know, it was a it was an important step for me to be able to go to to Brigham um, and them giving me a chance to, in some ways, take a small step towards a closer um, uh, point of contact with ENP, 
And then when I began Riser in late 2014, Alex was one of the instrumental persons in giving me a chance, both with his time um, as well as uh, capital in order to start uh, Riser One. And so thankfully he's been a person not only that took that initial step, but has taken many steps beyond that to support us and or hold us accountable to always uh, look to endeavor above and beyond uh, where we're at. Absolutely. What was your, uh, you know, what was your investment thesis, or you know, um, you know, what was the bridge between Brigham and and and, and Riza? Brigham was a, a, a fantastic place uh, to work in because they were kind of at the forefront of really systematically investing in minerals. Um, at the same time, as I saw. Uh, the opportunity investing in minerals, I saw the complementary thesis of being able to invest in the fractionalized interest of non-op. And what specifically intrigued me about non-op was the fact that you were able to see really the, the slice of the pie that represented the ownership from um, the point of view of the operator. And so to me, that allowed for both better investments as as a mineral company but also uh, more data with which to better understand how to invest in a continuous basis that could be married really well with um you know ai and and, and specifically you know kind of basic machine learning pieces to advance the knowledge base that that could give you so what got you interested in those type of technologies. And was that something central to the way you were looking at uh, Risa getting that company started? Yes, yeah, so thankfully I've, I've been exposed to um, what I would call volumes of data since my career began, be it at ExxonMobil in cleaning the production allocation databases to setting up a database uh, and hardware that enabled Schlumberger's frac pumps to communicate uh, in a continuous basis to a central database for uh, a group of data scientists or, or back then statisticians to understand how best to uh, enable them to be managed and or what the cost structure needed to be. And so as I, as I got into the ENP side, I'd always had this kind of conception of large amounts of data um, uh, can be turned into a powerful tool as long as you have the ability to dissect it appropriately. And, and shale in some ways became really an enabling force in oil and gas to do so because before you were doing one, maybe two wells and, and billions of dollars of investments, here was fractionalized interests in the United States at a much smaller scale of capital being done thousands upon thousands of times per year. And so the ability to aggregate that had financial implications that were exciting. Uh, the ability to have that data available and or be able to um, be accessed also had exciting opportunities with respect to the investment thesis that was built. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I noticed that that as a uh, private equity backed port co, you have 
a VP of data analytics as part of your management team. And it's rare when you look across the landscape of, of sponsored portfolio companies, you don't see that kind of representation at the management level, um, or it's rare that you do. Um, so it sounds as though technology and, and data uh, was very important to you culturally from the beginning of uh, the creation of RISA. And, uh, and it, it sounds like it was very much integral to the design and, and the strategy when you launched the endeavor. Is, is that fair to say? It was a, a non-negotiable point at the time that we raised capital uh, to be able to have a CTO um, that could empower the vision that we had uh, with respect to what we wanted to do. So yes. What, what's your view on, on the, the industry and landscape when you think about data and technology uh, and, and how it can be utilized, um, uh, uh, whether that be on the, the operations side or on the, the, the acquisition side of real assets? Uh, do, you have a, do you have a strong opinion about the industry in general? I mean, I, I think that um, we we have places where, especially in hardware um, and or modeling, that we've we as an as an industry have actually been really strong uh, historically. Um, at the same time, the uh, I think that the piece that um, has kept us maybe in some ways as a laggard is the fact that. Uh, companies and generally oil and gas companies tend to be very protective of of what they're doing and how they're doing it. Less so in the with the advent of shale and 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 what the public information that that represents. Um, but I think that between shale kind of de democratizing a little bit um, some of the um, pieces of information that are out there. Um, and then furthermore, the fact that the cost structure of oil and gas needs to be uh, to a point that makes for an attractive investment, which hasn't been so for the past, let's just say, decade, uh, makes it to where it, it becomes not no longer kind of a choice. It becomes a need. And I do think that um, there are opportunities for uh, technology to really have an influence on that cost structure coming down pretty significantly. So what uh, round of funding are you currently in, if, if I can ask you that? Four. For RISA. Yes. Uh, we're, we're currently launching uh, a capital raise for RISA for or RISA fund. Okay. So how, how many you know, rounds did it take before investors in the past who might have said no are now interested in RISA and the use of technologies in the space? And also, I think up front, how much, how much more rejection did you have, if any, um, when you were presenting this to potential investors with technology being, um, you know, a make or break for you? Um, it, it's a it's a difficult question to answer. In that, I think um, uh, the history that we now have in having built something that. Uh, enables us to have a, a differentiation and the success that we can show in putting that differentiation to work, I think 
will enable us to have conversations um, that are a lot more positive than at any other point in time in the history of, of RISA. At the same time, I think that as we go into this um, raising environment, this is probably one of the most uh, bearish or negatively sentimented environments against oil and gas that I've encountered, uh, even uh, more difficult than you know, 2014, 2015. Uh, and, the, and the reason being not so much uh, driven by uh, COVID and or macro ESG uh, positions, but I think the fact that we haven't really done a great job as an industry of returning capital and you have those macro pieces adjoining to the thesis, it creates for a sentiment that is difficult to overcome even with technology. And so before, when I first started Riser, uh, technology might have been kind of a nice to have, but the macro thesis of, you know, the interest in shale in 1415 and the capital that was behind it really helped uh, give it tailwind, even if it looked hard at the time. I think now you have kind of a much more bearish macro outlook, uh, people that have lost a lot of capital in the process. And so thankfully, I think we now have a quiver up our sleeve of being able to uh, reduce some of those barriers by the fact that we can show success in the last four to five years. Yeah, Luis, I've, I've got to imagine, you know, so often I see uh, technology is being an afterthought for companies. You know, they, they stand up their vehicle, they get their management teams in place, then they start thinking about technology and infrastructure. And, you know, given the, the, the structure, the private equity structure, the traditional structure, you don't have a lot of G&A budget up front to invest heavily in data and technology. How did you, given the constricting nature of GNA budgets relative to the, the fund structure, how did you think about funding a large scale technical effort and balance that with overhead and everything else? Um, you know, for us, a, a key to being able to do that successfully was um, one, uh, being able to consistently show that um, we were being prudent and successful in the investments that we were making, regardless of technology or no technology. And right. so consistently being able to show that the bottom line returns were there. And then the, the second piece was um, being able to build from the ground up our office in Cairo allowed us to tap into what is a massively talented market of software engineers and data scientists that um, we could hire at um, a very substantial differentiated cost to what you'd be able to hire if you'd be able to hire it in the US. Yeah, absolutely. And, and do you think that um, LPs uh, might find technology as a route to oil and gas? Uh, and that may be a story that resonates a little bit differently this go round. I, you know, my, I'm a little bit, um, 
I guess in my mind, the, the way that I think about it is for me, technology is an enabler to better understand how to invest. And if I truly believe that we have a differentiated view of being able to invest and be able to create a pipeline of investments, I'd rather not do it as a service, but do it for myself under a balance sheet. Right. Um, if I were to think about it as a service, um, I find that there might be, you know, some potential headwinds in that I see the the industry uh, consolidating. So they there should be, you know, uh, in the long term, fewer buyers of technology. And then furthermore, what I see is you need you need somebody within these companies that is able to both understand the language of the technology that they're wanting to implement and have influence over the people that make decisions as far right. as capital. Yeah. And, and, and that's tough. Um, I think some have cracked that code, but it isn't easy to you know, talk about machine learning, have somebody within the, the, the company that believes it, understands it, can monetize it and show it to the, the, the um, decision makers Right. And, and make a make an actual decision. And so, what I see is 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 um it's a tough road. Yes, potentially less capital intensive, but no less harder to to, to crack. Yeah. No. I, I guess my question was. I, I totally agree with you. I, I guess my question was more along the lines of a of a quant approach to private markets, um, as opposed to. Um, uh, a service, or or simply something that uh, that that augments or enables a team executing on a traditional kind of path. Um, uh, you know, do you do you see that story resonating with with um, with endowments or pension funds? Um, do you see? Technology, as you know, you know, and, and it could be applied to any real asset. Uh, oil and gas is one of many potentially, uh, but do you see kind of a quant approach to private markets as being a story that may resonate with that audience? I think so. I think again, I, I, I think that it needs to be towards an end that ultimately brings. Um, uh, a differentiated return, and so I think there's a lot of um, really, ex you know, exciting technology out there that does a lot of, you know, uh, different pieces that that I would that you know I look and, and enjoy, and at the same time, the lack of congruency or completeness and or history of being able to show success in in, in creating value. Um, and, and when I say value, I mean dollar value that you can show historically and consistently, I think um, makes it to where unless you have that history of success and it's very clearly tied to the technology that you're using, um, yep. you're going to have a hard time selling it or it making a difference to the pitch that you're trying to make. Totally agree. So, so <clears throat> you think about those value propositions when you think about the technologies that you guys have built and are utilizing, do you tend to think about 
the acceleration of deployment of capital and IRR? Do you think of ROIC? Do you think of just being able to 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 scale your business uh, with less overhead and 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 a Skinner G&A budget or all of the above? It's really uh, an all of the above. The first one is uh, consistency of underwriting uh, at a discounted multiple of investor cash. So what you said was going to happen, did it happen? And if it didn't, why it didn't it happen? Right. Um, and then being able to do that at scale and thus with you know the ability to grow the pipeline that you are exercising this underwriting process with a team that looks uh, similar to what it looks today and or if it's not slightly bigger but basically multiples different to the growth that you expect to be able to manage uh, on an asset level so how do you quantitatively assign value to technology when it was in place from the very beginning so how, how do you determine what the value of the technology is uh, and the return that it's provided to you uh, and, and investors? I, I think for us, we, we don't even um, really get into technology and valuation. To us, the technology is an enabling mechanism that we own. Um, and that's not really up for grabs. What's up for grabs is the end product that that creates. And so what we think about when we talk to investors is here's the assets, here's the pipeline, here's the history of the results that this has created and how we've managed it. Um, and just so that you know, this is enabled by the fact that we have these things, but it's not really what's up for grabs. Are there um, technologies that have performed exceptionally well that you would recommend other companies to consider adapting and others that you've either sidelined or removed from your system now that you're in round four of your capital raise? Nothing that comes particularly to mind. I, 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 I think that um, there's a lot of different um, technologies that are all really have, you know, value add. Um, to me, the, the important thing that um, we have is kind of a, a central thesis of, of how to invest. And the technology enables the breaking of the, of the silos of the different groups that need to think about the investment and creates consistency in how we do it and accountability in how we've done. And so um, I don't think I'm saying anything that is earth shattering. I think you can do this through various different um, technologies that are out there in combination. You just need to have a culture that kind of follows through and is consistent in doing so, more so than a technology in and of itself. So Luis, you said that, that technology was a a non-negotiable for you uh, when you started out on your own path here. Uh, what was the turning point in your journey that, that created such conviction for you? Uh, you know, the the I think it came with the um, understanding or, or maybe um, settling to the fact that I'm, I have a lot of biases that uh, I can only see by the fact that data 
is able to discern whether the bias is playing an effect or not, and a person whom I trust the judgment on, and we have data on which to base the conversation, I can um, have a different point of view that makes me uh, step back on any given decision that I'm about to make. And so I think um, at some point uh, during my process of, of managing frat crews, of implementing uh, statistics to understand the relationship between operations and costs at Schlumberger, um, business school, and then Brigham, it all kind of matured to a point where I thought, you know, people and data together with um, trust in judgment, but being sobered by, um, by data was a, a winning way of being able to uh, invest, at least in the long term. Um, you know, you can have one, one shot at luck um, and, and call yourself very good. But if you're thinking about 10, 20 years of consistency, I think you need, you need more than that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So have you regretted any investments either in, in technology or um, any, you know, investments that you've, you've made in assets where maybe you've had bad data or, or uh, not enough data? Um, you know, are, there, are there regrets uh, that you can recount? <laughs> Many, yeah. Uh, I think uh, I think that's you know that's if 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 you're only if you're only if you, if you only get wins, you're probably not pushing the envelope far enough. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, in order to understand uh, where the limits are, uh, not necessarily that I'm I'm looking to to know what those are, but I think you know something that we 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 did uh, in how we structured Riser from the beginning was the fact that no one given investment was, had the ability to take us down. And so as long as we're being thoughtful in retrospectively looking at how we'd invested, we should be able to veer ourselves towards success, you know, bar something, you know, very dramatic happening overall. And so although we had many investments that didn't really turn out how we thought they were, the fact that we were able to look ourselves in the mirror, understand, pivot, and um, grow from there, um, overall made what is in essence a statistically uh, distributed investment when you're investing in shale be nudged positively for us. So when you're checking your biases with data, uh, how does that play out culturally as well? And you know what type of expectations do you have for your team um, in in coming to the table with an idea or a concept, and the data they need to bring in order to support that idea or belief? I think it, it starts with uh, respecting uh, everybody within the organization and creating a place where people can challenge you. Uh, no matter you know what the idea is um, and or who is it coming from uh, and being open to 
um, learning from mistakes and not necessarily grabbing and, and, and reproaching people when they're done. And so I think, you know, within, within Riser, um, that can look like uh, any one of our data scientists coming with us and, and letting us know that the data doesn't really support uh, our views. And so we're going beyond what the data is telling us. Um, us going to our data scientists and telling them that first principles don't support what they're saying and having a debate between the two pieces of the, or, you know, the two uh, uh, groups of the organization to get a better answer together. Uh, and that happens a lot to having ideas of where the next investments should be. And these can be ideas from conversations that people have had and taking small risks that are not necessarily laid within the context of data, but laid within the context of giving value to the data that that will yield in order to enable future investments. Absolutely, so you know, kind of running with that theme, if you will, you know, a, a lot of sponsors, um, at least the ones that I've been uh, talking with, seem to be reluctant to deploy capital in this macro because uh, there seems to be the sentiment that no one wants to catch a falling knife. And I've heard some people say this is the death knell of, of oil and gas, and others say that you know this is a generational opportunity to buy assets. Where do you fall in that camp, and, and is right now a good time to buy assets? Uh, and if so, why? I, I, um, I guess I, I do think that there will be a big opportunity to come within oil and gas. Uh, I don't think that um, oil and gas is done by any means. I think that there's been a massive amount of learning. Uh, there will be significant consolidation that will create um, the ability for the for the industry to show that it can make competitive risk-adjusted returns versus any other industry out there, um, and so in that regard, I'm I'm you know confident that we as an industry will uh, be successful, and that will create investments opportunity. I I don't necessarily feel that if you're not investing today, you're missing out. I think that. Um, that that fear of missing out can lead to poor decisions. I think you need to understand that the the arbitrage of the opportunity constantly moves, and you just need to be able to know where that's at at any given point in time. Um, and if if that's the case, and, and, and you're you're able to do that, um, I think that um, structurally the the industry um, hopefully is now in kind of the latter parts of this game where. I think returns will drive, you know, the lack of capital and the concentration of returns will drive outperformance for people investing in it. Um, furthermore, if, if I think about it from the standpoint of the marginal barrel um, being the driver of where the price will ultimately be, I think that the marginal barrel is um, pretty significantly higher than where it's at today, uh, whether that takes a couple of years uh, for us to get there, uh, that might be the case. So there might be some patience involved, but um, bullish long term and not afraid to be missing out in the short term. Interesting. 
So Luis, the thing that's really interesting for me is you stepped outside of the comfort zone of a corporate gig that sounds like you were really successful at and also traveling all over the world uh, into a privatized space. So I'm wondering uh, where you're, you know, leading the front. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, looking back on your career, what are some of the things that are maybe even one specific thing that is central to your career that you wouldn't change for the world? And maybe what's something that you do a little differently? Uh, well, that's two tough questions. Um, I, look, uh, I think we have to um, uh, give credence to the fact that um, it, the fact that we're having this conversation means that we've been very lucky uh, uh, in one way or another. And so I think it might not be necessarily career related, but I think it's, you know, career and life to me in some ways intertwine and they intertwine in, in the value set that, that uh, I think of in, in living as one, uh, both at home and um, at work. Um, and so being, being an enabler of, of change in people, uh, in organizations and beyond is something that, that really drives me. And, and it drives me because I think it's a responsibility for the opportunities that I've been given. And that comes straight from, you know, uh, thankfully having a strong uh, family bond uh, both my wife, my children, my family, uh, from my parents and my brothers and beyond, that have instilled and um, fermented that along the way. Uh, and that's been complemented with friends uh, and now colleagues, etc., that have given me the space to be able to do that. Um, and then as far as taking back... Um, I, you know, I, I sometimes um, um, find it difficult to take back things that haven't gone well because they end up generally being the things that um, have nudged me to do uh, more positive things. I think we as, as humans act um, either through great pain or great motivation. And so, uh, Sometimes great pain has caused me to do things that I otherwise would not. You know, the, I think to me it's been, it's not personal, but the acrimony of the situation in Venezuela has been something that's been very difficult to um, manage throughout my career because I'd always gotten into energy thinking that it was a way of changing where Venezuela would ultimately be. So decoupling that was tough. And at the same time, I'm thankful in that I don't think I would be the entrepreneur that I am today if that hadn't been the case, um, because I would have been um, potentially in a much more comfortable place than I otherwise found myself. Wow. Luis, you sound like a really authentic leader. Um, and I've met some of the folks that that work for you and, and I'm inspired by them, and they seem like really pure and, and good people as well. How would how would some of your colleagues describe you as a leader? Do you think? Um, I think 
My hope would be honest and respectful. That's the two words that come to mind, um, which is what I try to to kind of live by. Um, I think regardless of who you are, that's the the two uh, fundamental things that you should hold yourself accountable with any given person. Um, and I hope that, you know, I, I sometimes have uh, the ability to be dishonest with myself and, and Claudia, my wife, is very good at calling me out at that. Uh, but beyond, I, I try to be as, as honest as possible uh, with the people that I, that I work with and beyond and, and respectful as well. Great. And I would add innovative. You know, in, in Q3 of 19, you know, Ryza closed the first investment grade rated securitization collateralized by, you know, PDP wellbeers. Can you talk a little bit about how this innovation materialized, whose idea it was, you know, the success of it? Uh, I know you guys have been a little bit quiet, so I want to be respectful of that, but anything that you might be able to share about that? Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the idea itself um, obviously isn't necessarily innovative within the context of finance. Uh, at the same time, it hadn't really been applied specifically the way that we did it to oil and gas. And so um, to me, uh, the idea, not necessarily exactly in asset-backed securities, uh, but the idea of it, of risk being uh, able to be uh, be driven down to an investment grade uh, type of risk um, uh, came from the very beginning in that the, the fact that you have uh, streams of cash flow being represented by wells and that you can buy minority interests on all these pieces and aggregate them to create um, a much more uh, diversified pool of predictable assets played very nicely with what you needed in order to make um, uh, an, an, a security. And so we, you know, from the very beginning, in some ways, we, we built our strategy in order to build an asset that fundamentally uh, was shaped to fit that um, type of security really, really well. Makes sense. And, and do you see this as a repeatable path going forward? And if, you know, why or why not? I think so. I, I think, you know, it, it's, not, it's not going to be a panacea. I think it's, it's, it's a more efficient structural way of uh, being able to access capital and give returns to investors. Um, and so for us, I think that we see it, uh, we see a path forward to being able to uh, continue to do this. I think that uh, this downturn will really be the proof of it holding and being successful in being an all weather way of investors getting a yield from oil and gas when generally when that's been targeted before investors have felt that they've gotten burnt and so there's this reluctance to see you know the the yield actually play out yeah. um but my hope is that 
will prove that to be the case and that will enable us to do more uh, of, of these asset-backed securities and others as well. Yeah, I mean, to me, it just felt like such an obvious thing that everyone was missing. And it was, uh, it was brilliant. It was, it was really awesome to see you guys bring that to fruition. So congratulations. I appreciate that. Yeah, and Luis, for me, my personal experience with uh, RISA was in the DJ. <clears throat> we were out there buying mineral rights. And what really impressed me was you guys were way ahead of the curve on some of these locations. And uh, can you just give me a little filler here? Because I do have some extra questions, but I don't want to get the facts wrong. I mean, are you pretty aggressive on the grassroots level of working directly with mineral owners? Or uh, are your acquisitions more driven by uh, using brokers or, uh, you know, smaller private equity groups that you can then absorb some of their interests? It's, it's an all of the above. I don't think, it, you know, we... In different areas, there's different avenues that we've found to be more successful. But I, I, I think that the ultimate goal was to be able to underwrite to the smallest deal possible uh, and still make it work. And so that allows us the flexibility to go direct, to create relationships with um, uh, brokers that have been really successful at helping us develop a pipeline and also have bigger deals with uh, be it other investment companies and or other companies. And so once you're able to be successful at navigating the underwriting of a very small deal accurately, uh, the ability to underwrite to bigger deals is just uh, a plethora of small deals at one time. So, I mean, for us, right, like the mineral space is really tough right now from the perspective of working with uh, on the grassroots level with uh, mineral, private mineral owners. So what uh, has your outlook for your grassroots work with mineral owners changed? Like, do you think there's a, a big delay that we have to wait through uh, with the steep drop in oil prices? Um, and the reason why I'm asking this is with the groups that we've worked with up in North Dakota who have been through one cycle of, uh, you know, high oil prices to low and what the delay looks like on buys, you know, for them, it was about a year. And I'm wondering if you're looking at this as a less grassroots type environment uh, for the next year or so, or if you still think there's a big market there. Uh, I, I think that, you know, nothing be it grassroots and or bigger, has really been moving at all. Um, and that just speaks to the period of uncertainty in which we live. And so, you know, when you have such magnitudes of uncertainty in the system, the people who are selling have a belief that there's still a, a pretty significant amount of value uh, left uh, and, 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 and rightly so, that can, you know, that can, that can definitely be the case. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, the people who are trying to buy think that only if it's, you know, an absolutely to die for deal, am I going to get in? And that's what should be available because we're in such a, a doldrum of, of a moment. And so the bid ask spread is so wide right now on any deal, be it large and or small, that I think it does take 
a bit of understanding of where COVID is going, where demand is going, and where supply will end up before you'll get uh, you know, more traction on, on, on the deal side at any level. So Luis, uh, I imagine you have a whole lot of experience and have worked in a lot of different spaces over the years and been through several cycles. Um, if you could give your younger self one piece of advice, uh, what would that be? Uh, you know, I, I think the, 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 the piece that comes to my mind is to not be afraid to take the first step. I think we tend to overthink things too much and think that we, we're not there, that, the, that we need to think it more, that we need to flush it out more, that we need to um, need more time uh, to, to get to where we want to get to. Um, and, and that can lead to inaction. Uh, and, and sometimes just taking that minor first step is probably the most important step that you will take. And it won't be you know, directly successful, it won't land where you need it to land, but I think just action uh, at some point becomes even more important than uh, retrospective understanding of the risk of that action. Um, and so I, I think I, you know, at any given point in time, I could have probably taken, um, or I've seen people that could have taken steps that they took longer to, to, to kind of bring to fruition than and um, they potentially should have, and and at times never never took them um, and just stayed, uh, be it at a company or doing whatever they might have been doing. And this is not this is not a this is not an endorsement towards entrepreneurship at all. This is actually I think in, in all walks of life, um, just this kind of concept of I've been wanting to travel to x and never did so I've, I've been wanting to read and never have done so i've been wanting to uh you know transition from one part of my company to the other and i've never done so and so it's it's the small kind of taking that step that i think is 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 really key to um playing the zigzag of ultimately getting to success that will look very different to what it actually um envisioned itself at the beginning of that journey yeah I, absolutely sorry I, I saw a quote from you about you know getting to know your gut and i think for me and i imagine there's a lot of people that feel the same way you know the uncertainty of the times creates a lot of fear of action you know making the wrong decision being too early on a move so I, and and i think you have it's an interesting uh, duality that you, you've proposed here because one is, you know, trusting your gut, but then also checking your facts and making sure that you have good information when you're making decisions. So how, how are you dealing with that right now in these times of uncertainty? And uh, I guess what, what type of advice would you give around that? Because I, I think there's a lot of really insightful things that you've shared here and um, also, uh, you have a career to back it up. So, uh, can you can you speak to that briefly? Um, sure. I think you know when I think about understanding um, 
my God, I, I think about it in two ways. One is if what you are making a decision on, um, you have uh, uh, history of uh, playing in that space and with that data and an understanding of where that's going, um, I think a gut instinct, although it seems impulsive, is much more informed than it might look. And so that doesn't necessarily mean uh, to do so uh, just because your gut is telling you, but it means uh, uh, have respect for what that's saying, uh, especially if it's going against the grain and dig into it uh, because it might produce something interesting. The other piece of, of, of that comment went more to do with, you know, at some times or, or at some point, somebody will tell you something that will, uh, will really hurt, uh, be it that, you know, something that you did that you shouldn't have done, uh, uh, some point that you stepped over a boundary that you shouldn't, um, and or a comment that, that uh, potentially rubbed you the wrong way. And so understanding the uh, implications of what's driving that gut reaction and having control over whether that's good or bad and knowing how to react to it next to go around is just as important because at the end of the day, your gut becomes in some ways the gatekeeper of more information getting to you that you can use in order to make a better informed decision. I think that was beautiful. It's not just purely emotions. It's, it's building off of your core knowledge and experience and then opening up the space. I know there's like an Einstein quote of he would take his idea to the very edge and then he would stop and just go to sleep. And in the morning it would come to him. And I think that's similar to what you're saying here. And I think it's profound because it's, and the fact that you've been able to do it professionally and personally is, is really interesting because you, you are at the forefront of the data, but at the same time, you're, you're very human and uh, it seems like in touch with who you are and uh, it's just very respectable and uh, really grateful to have you on the show here today. I appreciate your time. Thank you. I think it's, it's, it's a journey. There's a long way to go, uh, but thankfully I'm, I'm surrounded by people who care for me. Um, and that's, 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 uh, at, you know, at this point in time is something that, um, I think, um, comes to the front of, of, of really becoming, uh, something to be very thankful for. Yeah. Well, this discussion has been, um, absolutely uh, just just it's just been awesome i mean uh, i've learned a lot um you seem to be very authentic uh, you know very forward thinking articulate business minded you know and and have a sense of humility and and vulnerability that uh, that enables you to really touch others and and it's it's been a joy to, to visit with you is is there anything you'd like to share with the audience that, that we didn't cover um you know, anything that, that you're working on professionally or personally that, that, that you want to uh, highlight or, um, you know, any kind of parting thoughts? I, I think my, my, only, my only thought is I, you know, within the context of being very busy, I'm 
I think we as a company take uh, pride in um, purpose beyond ourselves. And, and so for anybody that um, uh, has the impetus uh, to become an agent of change, we and I have time to help. And so it's just an offer more than a statement uh, that I think uh, there's always energy and time for us to help people who uh, want to take uh, those next steps to help others uh, in, in any shape or form. So, Are there any particular things that you like to, uh, to gravitate towards? Are there any causes or, or any type of businesses that you especially like to, to work on, or is it just pretty much open-ended? It's pretty open-ended. You know, I, I, I have a soft spot for education. My mother um, was in education and um, really, uh, as it was my grandmother, and so it, it's something that I hold near and dear and, and think it's, it's, uh, it's one of those other big silos of, of change uh, next to energy and health. And so, but I, I, I just, I, you know, I find it interesting regardless of what it is. I, I think it, it's a way of enriching um, my view of where I can make a difference. And, and if it's further afield from where I understand, you know, hopefully I can help, but, but maybe not, but at least I learned something. Yeah, I definitely share that sentiment. It's fantastic. Well, Luis, this has been a super treat for me. Uh, Adam, yeah, any as well. No, I... I'm just looking forward to maybe getting you again down the road and seeing where you're at once you get all your capital raised and, um, you know, once some clarity comes to the market, love to uh, have you back on and get some insights. Uh, would love to. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the show. On next week's podcast, we take a moment to sit down with Evan Anderson, our guest host on Oil Intel, and get to know him, his story, and all the things he's working on over at Osberg. I hope by this point, you've had a great chance to get to know Evan a little bit better, but Michael and I are really excited to sit down with Evan and give you all a chance to learn more about him one-on-one. As always, if you have any recommendations for future guests on the show, please visit us on our website at oilintel.com. And finally, if you're a professional or part of an organization that's looking to create some change within the business, but looking for external help, Oil Intel is here to connect you with the right people. You can send me personally an email at adam at oilintel.com. That's adam at oilintel.com. Until next time. Stay safe, stay healthy, and frack on.